Hello there, I'm Patrick Stroth. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Well, it's January 2019. This is a time where you're gonna hear a lot of forecasting and predictions for the coming year in M&A. We left 2018 with a lot of troubling issues. Uh, global recession fears, trade wars, interest rates rising, things that do not bode well for the coming year. I'd like to say that I don't see the same thing. The circumstances that created not only a growing middle market M&A environment, but a sustainable one, were best outlined by Mahir Jabalia of KPMG. So what I'd like to do today is to rerun Mahir's explanation on why not only middle market M&A will be seeing growth, but that growth will be sustained. Have a listen and welcome back. Today, I'm joined by Mahir Jabalia, Managing Director of KPMG's Corporate Finance Technology Practice here in Silicon Valley, where he serves as an advisor to technology clients with a focus on both M&A and private capital raises. Mahir, thanks for joining us today. Patrick, thank you. Thank you for having me. Appreciate uh, the opportunity to speak with you. Well, to give everybody here a little context, your background is extensive uh, educationally in chemical engineering. Why don't you tell us how you got from chemical engineering to this point in your career where you're advising on major M&A transactions in the tech sector? Yeah, great. So, yeah, by background, I'm an engineer by training. So I have an undergraduate and a graduate degree in chemical engineering, worked as an engineer for a few years, uh, and then I got bored and went back to business school at the University of Chicago and um, uh, majored in uh, finance, accounting, and strategy. And then coming out of business school, I, I went into investment banking and uh, was have been an investment banker now for about 20 years. Uh, I've spent my entire career working with tech companies on raising capital and advising companies on M&A and have, you know, worked with companies, both public and private companies on, on raising capital and have advised companies on both mergers and acquisitions. But I think the engineering background does come in helpful because A, I uh, have a understanding of what the, the uh, what the companies do in terms of their products as well as uh, the technical know-how that the, that the founders have or the or the teams have, and also understanding the markets, understanding the end markets of where these products go, and so it's good to have a technical background, especially uh, working with technology companies. And Silicon Valley is a great place to be. So in in our business, it's good to be at the epicenter of kind of where where things happen. I mean, you have. A number of large companies here who are very active in M&A, um, companies like Google, Oracle, Facebook, Microsoft, etc. But you also have um, a fantastic ecosystem here in Silicon Valley, where uh, you know 60% of the venture capital dollars on the planet get invested in the Silicon Valley, San Francisco Bay Area. So there are a lot of new companies that get created here. There's a lot of technical talent, managerial talent, capital available. Um, uh, and so there's a very good ecosystem for companies that get created. And over time, you've seen a lot of these companies become very large companies. So 
Um, that's a quick background on myself and uh, type of transactions that I've worked on, Patrick. Give us a perspective for KPMG uh, in general and you, your team in particular here. Uh, in terms of number of deals that you guys have worked in the last, I don't know, 12 or 18 months? Yeah, I'll share with you a little bit of pers uh, background on our practice. We are the most active advisor globally in the middle market. So KPMG is a firm in the last five years, we have closed 2,000 plus deals, which makes us the most active firm globally. Uh, so year in, year out, we're doing about 400 plus deals a year, all in the middle market. So what does that mean? It's, it's M&A deals generally between 25 million to 500 million in enterprise value. We'll also do private placements, generally 15 million and up in capital. And we are very active in the market. So uh, our clients tend to be uh, venture-backed companies, uh, private equity-backed companies, founder-owned companies, and small to mid-cap public companies. And if you look at just in tech, for example, which is kind of where I focus, uh, you know, a bulk of the transactions, kind of 80 plus percent of the transactions in tech are below $250 million. So I think there are a lot of companies where they raise some capital and ultimately the outcome is either M&A or, or they raise additional capital. And then that's the market that we play in is actually the most active part of the market. Um, yeah. Tech. Yeah. I, I, uh, you and I spoke a while back where, the the billion dollar deals get the headlines and a few years ago was uh, a deal that would be a billion or two billion now there are deals in the 50s and 30 billion dollar range that are the ones that make the headlines but far more frequently you've got just a great array of transactions down that people don't hear about but they're in the 100 million to 250 million dollar M&A deals yeah, I, I think you're right. So I think you, you, there's a, if you look at sort of um, venture-backed companies over the last, uh, call it, you know, 10 or 15 years, if you look at the data for ultimately what happens to these companies, 90-plus percent of these companies exit through M&A. And, you know, you hear of the occasional IPO, which gets a lot of press, and uh, for all the right reasons. But the the bar to go public has become much higher the the size requirement from public institutional investors uh to have a company go public has become much higher so it takes you know back in 99 2000 time frame companies would get to 5 to 6 million in quarterly re revenues and file an S1 for a 25 30 million dollar IPO and today in today's world the average sort of revenues for a company before they file an S1 is about $130 million. So for a company to go from zero to $130 million, it generally takes more than 10 years, and that's with good growth. So a lot of investors who have come in early in those companies generally get end of life by the time even a company does go public. And you know the reality is uh, an IPO is really a financing event. It's really not a liquidity event for for shareholders and, and management. So, um, you know, I think uh, we, have, we have been in a very strong sort of M&A market and that, uh, that, uh, that, that kind of continues. We've had sort of a nine-year bull run in M&A and the market continues to be very active. You don't see any slowdown in it? 
we had a little bit of a slowdown last year. I mean, just to just to put some n- numbers, uh, just uh, just so that kind of your listeners understand uh, where we have been. So the the low point in the market was 2009 in terms of global M&A activity. In 2009, uh, we had 2.4 trillion dollars of M&A. Last last year. We had 3.4 trillion dollars of M&A at the at the peak of the market was in 2015, where we had 4.5 trillion of M&A. So uh, in terms of the uh, market, we have had a very strong market uh, over over a nine-year period now. Uh, this year, and just in the first quarter, we had a, over a trillion dollars of M&A activity, and we will likely cross. Um, you know, 2016 numbers this year. So it'll be just shy of 2015. But we are in a very, very strong sort of M&A market. And if you kind of ask me as to why are we in a very strong market, fundamentally, we we have a very strong economy. I mean, you look at all the public market indices, they've all been, they've all done extremely well. So you have uh, public companies that are uh, very sort of uh, they're using they're using their balance sheet they're using their stock. Uh, we we are still in a record low interest rate environment. So you have public companies who are generating a lot of cash, uh, and they're not collecting a lot of interest uh, on the on their cash that they have on their balance sheet. So uh, you have also investor activism where inv- public investors are they want to see management put the capital to use or dividend back to shareholders. So you have sort of a environment where uh, public companies are being asked more about growth and they're certainly being very active in the market. Now on top of that, private equity firms are uh, are sitting on a record amount of cash. Private equity, if you look over the last even five years, private equity firms have raised so much capital that they're, they are putting that capital to work in terms of acquiring companies uh, and also doing a number of add-on acquisitions. So private equity firms are being super active in this market. In fact, last year, of all the acquisitions done by private equity firms, about two-thirds of those acquisitions were add-ons to their portfolio companies. And this year, we are on track to see private equity firms being doing uh, uh, sort of having a record record year in terms of new investments. So I think okay. it, it is kind of a very uh, there, there are a lot of sort of macro factors which are driving this uh, this M and A market, but uh, certainly doesn't seem to be slowing down anytime soon. Well, I think the factors you mentioned they're all right now sustainable, and that's unlike some of the past bubble periods where I, I just can remember when we used to. Right, DNO policies for companies going IPO. A lot of times, the the drive during the dot com era for going public was uh, you wanted to do it to show your relevance in the marketplace. You you weren't doing it um, for any other reason than there was a, a hint of vanity. But it was well, other people are doing it. I have to do it to keep pace, and that's not a sustainable model. Whereas these factors are coming in because you've got capital coming from a lot of different areas. And uh, particularly, you know, where you've got large uh, funds that are holding on to portfolio companies for a period of time. And as you'd mentioned before, they may not go public. And so what are you going to do with these 
you know, they're profitable investments. They are good, but they're not going to deliver the return that, that you're looking for. So sometimes it's, it's time to spin those off and look for other opportunities. Well, if you're spinning it off, that means somebody has to buy them. Yeah. I mean, I, I think um, there will. So let me, let me uh, bifurcate the discussion by saying, look, there are companies that will come out of this um, where there, there will be some phenomenal public companies that will come out of this this time frame, right? I mean, you have a number of great companies that are being created that are currently private. I mean, companies like an Uber or a Airbnb or or um, you know a house or or there are a number of companies which are kind of uh, uh, they are they are. Uh, Changing the sort of incumbent market, where whether it's the taxi cabs or you have, uh, you know, the real estate market, or you have uh, the the uh, uh, home remodeling market or or construction, or there's a number of markets which are getting completely turned on their heads. So you you're going to see some amazing companies that will come out of this. But let me just give you a stat, which is kind of which which will kind of illustrate the point. We have 160 plus unicorns still, uh, where these companies have raised capital at north of a billion dollars of valuation in the last 10 years. If you look at private companies, only 55 private companies have been sold for north of a billion dollars, and so that's about five and a half transactions a year of north of a billion dollars. And so if you look at these companies of 160 plus unicorns. And there's only five and a half transactions a year of north of a billion dollars of private companies. You technically have inventory for over the next 30 years, right? So a lot of these companies are predicated on going public and some of them absolutely will because they're so big, nobody can buy them like an Uber or a Airbnb, for example, they're just so big. They, the valuations are so large that they, they pretty much have to go public, but there are a lot of these companies which are not going to go public. And I think there is going to be, uh, you know, so for the companies that perform, there's certainly going to be some nice exits through M&A. But for you know, you 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 know, investors are also being very cautious on saying you know companies need to have a path to being profitable. So investors want to certainly see growth, but also want to have some financial discipline. And I think that's the probably the biggest change is you're seeing companies are much bigger, but also have lot more financial discipline in this market than companies that you saw in the 99-2000 timeframe. That was the one thing that was absolutely a characteristic of the of the dot-com era was uh, increased burn rates and uh, they, they weren't deploying the capital very efficiently and I, I completely agree with you there. Another sustain, you know, reason for sustainability for uh, successful companies. For your advisory services, if one of our technology clients out there uh, is they're building up at, at what point would they be considering an, uh, an M&A transaction where they'd seek out an advisor like you? I think for us, we generally want to see companies where they have um, 10 million uh, or so in trailing revenues. Uh, we generally that's a point where we generally get engaged with with clients in terms of helping them on m a or and or um, uh, private placements uh, have we taken companies which are slightly smaller than that yes but not too much smaller but I think that's kind of the bare minimum in terms of type of companies that we get engaged with I think it's more more than the revenues it's more about um, 
you know, A, what, what is the team like? Is it an all-star team? B, how big is the market? I mean, you, if you have a big market, it forgives a lot of sins. Um, you know, C, is this a, a company that has a, you know, proven product or, or services in terms of do they have, have they been able to prove out the business model and been able to sell into the, uh, sell their products into customers who have bought and have kicked the tires and ultimately uh, deployed the product? And, and for ultimately, what is the, what is the business model and, and, and the financial model? Is there, is it a one-time sale or is there any sort of recurring revenues? Uh, I think we kind of dig into all of those things and, you know, there's no sort of one factor, but kind of you look at, look at a company from all these sort of lens and kind of have a, have a point of view as to, is this a company that ultimately is going to be attractive to buyers and or investors? Because we, we take on transactions that we can close. Okay. Well, and, and you do a high number of them. Is there any, key from your experience uh what separates a successful m a transaction from an unsuccessful one whether you're advising on the buy side or the sell side yeah uh what i would say is uh, first of all companies that are thinking about potentially having an exit uh they start preparing for an exit several years in advance of an exit day and so it's it's very much a thoughtful process of okay, who are the most likely buyers in the space or around the around our space? And do we know them? Do we know, have we, do we have visibility into the C-level C executives at those companies where they know us? And uh, do we have the right partnership? Do we have revenue sharing partnerships with the right companies? And so, because it's much easier for a company to see some revenue traction over time where and, and where there's a relationship built, built between a seller and a buyer versus PowerPoint slides and on on you know what the synergies are. So I think that the thoughtful companies actually think about uh, who the right buyers are and start building those relationships much in advance of a transaction. Generally, at least two or so years prior to a transaction, they start thinking about biz dev and uh, corp dev type relationships with the right sort of companies in the ecosystem. Number two, also getting a right alignment with your investors. There are, I think there are a lot of times where you have investors who have certain expectations of, of value from a company and you want to make sure you are aligned with your investors and keeping them informed in terms of where the company is going and how you can benefit from being part of a a larger strategic or having another sort of uh, a private equity firm who can who can be involved in the company. So I think get, getting, uh, you know, I would say two things. Number one, building visibility with the right sort of strategics uh, in, in, the, in the ecosystem can be very helpful from a business standpoint, but also uh, building sort of um, the right relationships and building trust. And number two, uh, getting alignment with your with your investor base. I think I think both of those are absolutely critical. And I think also because you know when you think mergers and acquisitions, people on the outside think, well, company A is buying company B, and it's actually people where it is the executive management team or the corp dev team of company A 
has a relationship or an understanding with the owners, founders, or the all-stars of their target company, uh, and they have to think about working together or, you know, those types of uh, issues rather than just the, the dollars and cents to make sure it's the right fit. Is that probably, you know, what would you say would be your number one piece of advice that you would share with, you know, owners and founders out there that are thinking, you know, they're on the back nine of their career or they're emerging and they're at a point where they're not going to be able to grow much more and maybe they have to start looking at a strategic partnership or something. What would your advice be uh, to them? I think, uh, so number one, I think you have to think about, um, you know, both growth and profitability. Companies, a lot of private equity firms that we talk to, they are interested in the rule of 40. So they, they look at a company and say, is a, com- is a company growing at 20 plus percent in revenue? This is, so let me explain the rule of 40. The rule of 40 is investors, private equity firms want to see companies that have revenue growth plus the EBITDA margin uh added up to north of 40. so if a company is growing revenues at 20 percent and has 20 percent ebitda margin that's great that's that's the rule of 40. if a company is growing revenues at 40 percent and has zero percent ebitda margin that's fine because you're basically deploying all that ebitda back into the company and growing revenues if you have a business which is flat so essentially zero percent revenue growth but if you have 40 percent ebitda margin that's fine too because you're in you're a business where you are you're generating significant amount of cash and you know it's a slow growth or a no growth market right so and, and you want to see one of these two if but if you have a company which is growing at zero percent and has zero percent ebitda margin that's not going to be very attractive to 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 private equity investors now strategics are generally looking for sort of a you know build versus buy kind of model where does it give them time to market? And also from a private company standpoint, if you think about if we raise more capital, it's going to take more take dilution. And then we are also taking on operating risk to grow the business. And then with new capital comes a different perspective on ultimate time to an exit. Because when a new investor comes in, and even if they are coming in in a minority role, they generally want to make three times their money in three years. So the ultimate price for an exit goes up quite dramatically and the number of buyers shrinks. So I think you have, as a, as a CEO or CFO or a owner of a company, you have to be thinking about, you know, is this the right type of business which requires a institutional investor? And all companies don't necessarily fit the mold of an institutional investor. And, and remember, institutional investors are looking for companies that can go through hyper growth and ultimately have a good exit. And some some businesses um, are well suited for that, others are not. So I think you just have to find the right type of investor who can fit, who can match kind of your your ultimate objectives. But if you're if you're to your question, if you're if you're in the back nine of your uh, of your company, you wanna you wanna if you are to look at kind of, is this a company where with a different balance sheet, you can run the company differently? Is there a M&A strategy? Because private equity firms want to acquire a company, but they don't want to run the company just as is. There's, there's a plan around kind of how are we growing, going to grow the company faster? Is there, is, there a, is there enough market opportunity where with a new management team, a new owner can grow the business faster? And if there's an opportunity like that where with, with 
organic growth and or inorganic growth with acquisitions to scale the company and get much bigger, ultimately improving margins, then, then there is a story there in terms of bringing in a, the right type of investor. But I think you have to kind of think about what, what are the key things that you would, how, of how you would run the business differently with a strategic investor or a buyer and or a private equity firm for, for, to, to get interest. Well, and I would think that, yeah, that's helpful. I think engaging an advisor like you would be step number one in organizing that that process and finding, you know, what are the goals, what are the fits, and because you've been involved in so many deals, you, I'm sure, have a lot more options available for them to think about than they could come up with themselves, obviously. And so I think the value that that's brought there, in addition to you would then also, throughout the course of uh, your services, you hold their hand and walk them all the way through the process. So it's not just the overall strategy, it's actually execution, correct? Yeah, I, I would say uh, that hiring good advisors is is critical to getting a good outcome. And I think it's it's hiring good accountants, hiring good lawyers, hiring good, good, good bankers. Uh, because you need to have good accountants to have your numbers uh, in in the uh, to be shown in the right way, whether they're audited numbers or reviewed numbers, you need to have good counsel. So having a good lawyer or a law firm is going to be very helpful as you go through an M&A process because there are a lot of things that will come up during an M&A process where it's important to have good counsel. And number three, having a banker or an M&A advisor to help you through the process is going to be really critical because A, generally you're kind of heads down focused on running the business. You want to have an advisor who has reached into strategics in the U.S., outside the U.S., private equity firms, who are the portfolio companies of the private equity firms, and then run a process to maximize value, valuation and terms. Because it's you want to make sure you are getting in front of the right parties to be able to tell the story to get the interest. I mean, there are so many instances I can tell you over the last even 12 months where, you know, we when we talked to companies, they thought, you know, company A, B, and C would be the right buyers. And ultimately, there was a company completely out of left field who ended up being the buyer and ultimately was willing to pay the highest value for the business. So, you know, uh, I would certainly, and, and so certainly have an advi- have, having advisors really uh, helped getting a good outcome for the process. Also, at times, you know, these discussions or negotiations do get, um, uh, do have some friction. So, and it's also good to have sort of a, uh, a buffer, whether it's your law firm and or your bankers involved in having those hard discussions with your potential buyer, because you may ultimately have to work with them. So I, I, that would be my advice in terms of getting your numbers in order before you even start a process, but then also making sure you have a good lawyers and bankers to help you through the process. And they certainly should be able to deliver significant value uh, for you in a process. Well, I, I couldn't have said that any better myself. The only other add-on I would say to that is because of your experience in this community, it's a tight community here in Silicon Valley, you can, for your clients, particularly on the sell side, you can parse out and segregate from really good active buyers and others that may just want to kick the tires and 
you know, uh, may not necessarily have, uh, have the best intentions out there. And, and you know, the good, the, the really good players in, in the, in the community versus, uh, others that may offer higher, higher valuations, but then the terms are not as favorable. Yep. Yep. You got it. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I sure have to, I have to run. Uh, so I, I apologize if I may have to cut it short by a minute or two, but I, um, I have a sort of a client call that I need to take, but I really appreciate you, you setting this up. This has been certainly very helpful. And if there's anything I can do to help, uh, please let me know. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. Uh, Mihir, real quick, just how can our listeners reach you? Yeah, they can reach me by email. Uh, it's mjobalia, so M-J-O-B-A-L-I-A at kpmg.com. I will repeat, M-J-O-B-A-L-I-A at kpmg.com or my phone, 408-367-2850. Mahir Jabalia of KPMG, thank you very much. Thank you. Take care.